Hello, everybody. Welcome to Last Minute Politics. I am Pepper Coyote, and I am joined once again by Lorkin. Say hello. Hello. Thank you for having me on once again for the hundredth time in a row. <laughs> I know. Well, this is only like three or four. That's good. Like every time it gets a little, you get more used to like I it was I do five. the same nonsense every time. Are we at five at this point? I think so. That'd be nice. Five would be five is a good number. A lot of people I don't get to five with. <laughs> now I'm thinking, I'm like, oh, crap. X person who I haven't talked to in several months. Maybe they would come on again. Oh. But uh, we have not, I don't have necessarily anything Irish to talk about today, but I do have international things. And just overall, I just enjoy having perspectives of people outside of the U.S., not exclusively, but nothing changed my way of thinking faster than speaking to people who don't live in my immediate area. Because if you just live here and talk to only American leftists, you get a very different idea as to not only what's going on in the world, but like what the general left opinion in the globe even is. We're going to be talking about Africa a little bit later today, but I want to start out talking about the UPS strike and the fact that, like, you are, you live an ocean away. Were you aware of the, you, you also, like, look into news stories a little bit more than your average person, I assume, but have you oh, had the US, UPS strikes? Had they made um, news? Yes, um, not <laughs> as much as would be expected within the UK. It's kind of as a, Kind of as a side story, almost deliberately, in my opinion. Um, I've heard somewhat of the reasoning behind the strikes in particular. I've also heard of the fact that, well, there was original deadline for the strike, if I recall correctly, on August the 1st, which was kind of a big thing in, in mid-July. And I also heard that there was back and forth between the management of UPS and the actual union leadership in particular whereby the um whereby the management if you will created a tentative contract that was established on July the 25th include which included things such as the possibility of life-saving air conditioning on trucks which was which was of a big issue um as well as certain points with regards to the concerns of underpayment of part-time staff which is obviously a big problem over there so that was kind of the main bits but otherwise not much more was really touched on it, to tell you the truth. You've heard about as much as any any American has, and kind of like with the like you watch how the news cycles work out, and it makes me sound like a paranoid person to a lot of people. But uh, the people who own the media outlets that you're going to hear the most from, we're about to read from Reuters. Uh, they're all owned and controlled by the same people who own and control the companies. So it's not that they're evil, spooky villains. It's just their class interest is as such that they don't want to be putting out a lot of stuff that would that could possibly make you sympathetic to these strikes or labor actions. They yeah. kind of want you to think, oh, yeah, it's just like a thing that's going on. It's probably over. Like when the rail strike happened, that's the general idea people got. Oh, there was a thing and ah, it's over. That thing that had been going on for five years of delayed negotiations and temporary deals and all this shit. And it's an industry that would shut down the entire country. So the fact that we just get nothing. We hear more about when the UK has a, a freaking, like when the tube goes on strike and people can't use the subway in london we hear about that more than oh there's garbage strike because they don't want to pay the garbage workers <laughs> we hear more about that than we do about our own stuff but i'm going to read from reuters a bit and they're going to talk mostly i choose things like reuters because you can't possibly call this a biased left outlet 
August 8th, Reuters, USP, uh, United Parcel Service. It's, we have USPS, United States Post Service, and UPS, United Parcel Service, I think it is. And I always say the wrong acronym. But UPS, the private entity, not our government post, uh, cuts uh, cut its full-year revenue and profitability targets on Tuesday as the world's largest package deliverer faces higher labor costs and fights to win back U.S. business lost during tumultuous contract talks with the Teamsters. So, yeah, we heard about a little bit of a buildup. And there has not been a strike, but there has been a tentative agreement which boils down to here's what we here's your full deal. You have a bit of time to read it and vote on it. In the meantime, here's your tentative agreement so we can continue operating. Like U, UPS has not shut down. There hasn't been a strike. They have given them a new five year deal that they now the, the the Teamsters and UPS they get to vote on and decide if they accept the deal. Don't go on strike. There's many options from here. I uh, predict that this deal will be accepted and we'll just all move on with our lives. Which it's not being forced by the government this time, but. UPS reached a tentative five-year deal for some 340,000 U.S. employees represented by the International Brotherhood of Teamsters Union shortly before the July 31st expiration of their contract. And while we're talking about this, the Teamsters is a grander union that represents all kind of like various truck drivers. Not all are UPS, but the union that UPS workers are under are the Teamsters. So all UPS Teamster, uh, all UPS union members are Teamsters, but not all Teamsters are UPS employees. Oh, just to make it easier to comprehend, of course, um, that slight, you know, dichotomy between the two, if you will. We have the, like in Europe, as I understand, unions are based by trade. Yes. So if you're like a food worker, all food workers are in the food worker union, which probably isn't called that, but you know what I mean? Like all sanitation workers are in the sanitation. So when like. There's an example I that's kind of like it makes you feel good about yourself. Where in the Netherlands, it's like McDonald's wanted to move in, but they refused to cooperate with various like regulations and the unions. And they're like, "Oh, we're just going to do this all ourselves." And since all the unions are broad enough and they are all individualized into, I'm in the fry worker union, I'm in the burger flip union, I'm in the clean the store union. <laughs> uh, yeah, you got enough unity that McDonald's it was made almost impossible it was made impossible for them to operate because the builder union wouldn't build the stores the shipping union wouldn't bring them their stuff like and the food workers union wouldn't like nobody would go and work <laughs> as a food worker there yeah. so like you eventually get you can you have enough leverage you can force companies to do stuff we're here in the U.S. Even our when the big railroad strike, remember it was like nine different unions that all had to agree because there's the signal yeah. worker union, the engineer union, the guy who loads the train union, the guy who changes the clothes of the guy who loads the train. It's and that's done intentionally, so it's harder to get yep. your worker solidarity going if you're in twelve different little unions that all have to agree over various crap. In this case, though, it's only one of them. <laughs> Um, well, I keep reading from Reuters. For a change. Yeah. <laughs> Rival FedEx required that shippers ramp up volume. Wait, required that shippers ramp up volume ahead of the UPS contract expiration in order to guarantee deliveries during a potential strike. The whole lead up was like, oh, we're going to bleed off UPS's business in case the strike happens. Uh, UPS customers shifted about 1 million packages per day to other providers, resulting in about 200 million in lost sales. Data suggests that the USPS, FedEx, and regional rivals each picked up about one-third of that business. 
So, like, to briefly talk about, I'm lucky enough that I have a friend who works for UPS, who is a union member and who is full-time. So, like, they're entirely involved in this, which is neat. And to summarize, you can find find more details about this, but, you know, we have a a certain amount of time here on the show. The pros are they are getting a pay raise. Uh, Their benefits are not getting touched. Originally, it was going to be a decrease in benefits, like you pay more for your health insurance or your health insurance gets shittier. And then a whole lot of small things. Like some air conditioning and trucks, which is a point people may have heard about air conditioning and trucks. Oh, we gave them air conditioning and trucks. They will be adding air conditioning to new vehicles only. (laughs) And in five years, it is uh, reckoned that they will be at about 20% of trucks will have air conditioning. So one in five trucks will actually have some air conditioning. So when they say, oh, they're putting AC in the trucks, that's what that actually means. And then cons would be that they had already previously negotiated Saturdays into their – it used to be a Monday through Friday company. He worked Monday to Friday. And then a few years ago, okay, we're also going to work Saturdays. And that was like a concession given by the workers in negotiations. And now they will be working seven days a week, which some people might go, well, come on. Everybody works seven days a week. I'm like, well, what's the point of a union? (laughs) Remember when unions fought for a weekend? Remember in 1920 America? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> We're just giving that shit up. Something, so some, yeah, something that's very overlooked, to be honest with you, almost deliberately. And I mean, when it comes to even the air conditioning issue, I mean, some articles have disputed 20%, some have disputed a third. But the fact of the matter is that it, the reality <laughs> is everybody should be getting air conditioning, to be honest, especially given your inhuman... <laughs> heat waves i hope politely. all the phoenix drivers have air conditioning it's 111 right now well it's 102 but but even so i mean <laughs> like i mean people seem to be forgetting that um you know what there, there there's been many cases where people have died of heat stroke whilst on the job but an infamous one a couple of years ago was a gentleman called esteban uh chavez jr if i recall correctly um who actually died last year after collapsing in his truck from yeah, it was 2022 in particular just last year um which kind of was highlighted yeah which was highlighted last year even so you know and it's not the first time so a lot of people on the left consequently have been kind of wondering well was the union leadership strong enough were they making reasonable concessions or were they just you know not bothering to take it a step further especially when the inequities themselves are still quite sickening i mean i believe the ceo of ups uh, made about 27 million dollars last year in particular and this is only personal mind you and there has been also a talk of a no vote which i believe the union is in the process of voting since the first of august if i recall correctly. yeah the votes coming up i think it ends on the 20th it definitely ends by the end of august so by september 1st we'll we'll know what's going on uh, and what is the general consensus, I suppose, is what people would be asking. Well, uh, the, uh, the friend I uh, talked to, who I believe is in about, like, you know, middle of the bell curve, they're not, they're they're definitely not like a leftist extreme, like, I'm a militant union member who's going to push, they're, like, they're middle of the road uh, in, their, in their general views, and they're, like, optimistically, like, cautiously optimistic on it. The pay raise is definitely nice, but even they admitted, they're like, well, the places where we did not get the movement that we wanted were for part-time employees, and they are still maintaining the, uh, this is part of my list of cons here, bad things, it keeps the two-tier employment structure, 
And I don't even know if that two-tier employment structure is just part-time, full-time, or if there are further subdivisions within the full-time division. I think that's just the part-time, full-time. But the argument that I you have to try to like impress on people upon union members and workers is, guys, if they're allowed to persevere with a two-tier uh, pay structure and benefit structure, they just stop hiring at the upper tier and of wait, <laughs> like how many industries do we know of? That's the classic stuff that went down in the 70s here in the U.S. They just stopped hiring the, quote, good jobs, and everybody were part-time schleppers trying to hope one day I'll get made full-time, and then, oh, the factory shut down. Sorry. Like, and that's how it ends. And they'll be like, oh, well, it's the factory shut down because there was too many greedy. Now the factory shut down because, like, Bill Clinton got through NAFTA and suddenly it became, like, a one-eighth the price to ship all your shit over to China and Indonesia. <laughs> that's the actual issue <laughs> yeah. there. And hey, having a strong union, maybe you could fight against stuff like that. It's like we all understand that trickle-down economics are nonsense, and I see these weak union contracts as just an extension of trickle-down economics. Because another point that the same friend impressed upon me was, hey, three years ago, uh, not three years ago, five, six, seven years ago, when the last contract happened, FedEx, uh, UPS was making $3 billion, billion profit, and our contract was at X. We kind of just took no, – there have been a – I've listened to other union leaders talking about how, yeah, this looks like a big pay increase, but you have to look back at the history history of how many contracts we have foregone pay increases, even taking little minor, basically taking pay cuts, because with inflation, you're taking a pay cut, in order to help UPS, because the union does not exist to destroy UPS. They just want kind of greater, I would hope they would be for eventual total worker ownership of the enterprise, but... Yes, they're getting a pay increase, but if they had gotten the pay increases that would have been standard, considered like cost of living increases uh, throughout through history, they would be higher than like they'd be like double what this new pay increase is even going to be giving. So while keeping the thing in perspective, this is also now uh, UPS made I think it was thirty billion dollars in profit. So like they went from three billion, thirty bit like the pandemic hurt a lot of businesses shipping was not a business it hurt shipping went crazy no. like amazon up all these couriers suddenly have made insane profits and they're not like going away it's just more people now just do that as the standard way to get their stuff as you go through ups meaning you go through amazon or some other kind of online uh retailer and what even if you're paying these guys a hundred dollars an hour <laughs> first the work they're doing is kind of extreme and second like it doesn't even cut into a percentage of these profits. Like if you just look at the just look at this economically, you made this much, you paid them this much. <laughs> all the things we already know about insane corporate greed, and we're all looking at the the sad, the Actors Guild one gets a lot more. Uh, the Writers Actors Guild gets a lot more attention, but they'll be like, if Disney gave up 0.1 percent of their profits, the strike, and it's like, yeah, that's true about UPS. Also, that was true about the railroad strike. The actual math never makes any sense if you look at it from the no, boss's perspective. Yet the workers and even the guy I was talking to, he's like, well, you know, we don't want UPS to go out of business. Like they genuinely like the company they work for. They just want to get not treated like fucking dogs. <laughs> well, as it turns out, I think that's quite a natural and normal request. Um, I'd like to think. I mean, and like that's kind of the thing, I suppose. I mean, when it comes to the number crunching in particular, particular, it never adds up. As a matter of fact, I mean in the UK with regards to the RMT union strikes, which were the railway strikes within the UK, mind you, that have still been going on since it's been a couple of years now, I believe. And they're still going on until September of this year. Um, 
they didn't remind make... me because it's changed. Did the UK yes. renationalize its rail, or is it still weird private? Still weird private, um, right. especially in England. It, each network is a private company in essence, owned by the German the... and Dutch. Well, <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, again, the Germans and Dutch bought up the railroad. We, we like to talk. Like shit now. We like to talk about our good old British nationalism, but the reality is, uh, we don't own anything, as it turns out. But on that particular basis, you know, yes, they're taking a certain percentage out of their profits. Okay, but the reality is, the math still doesn't add up when it comes to people's ultimate welfare. I mean, again, the, the RMT faced very similar cases. And then when they turned around under the leadership of Mick Lynch and stated that, no, that wasn't, that's not good enough for what we were asking in particular. So we're not going to negotiate further until, until management is willing to create a better series of deals, which they have been, you know, the union itself has been trying to go under negotiations. But since they said no to that, just the, to that simple deal, that the railway companies were offering, the railway companies have nice just they've just folded their arms basically and have decided not to um get involved really, if you will. And it's kind of funny because the media spun this as Mick Lynch essentially saying, I don't want to negotiate, even though he made every effort to negotiate. He's constantly tried to negotiate. It's the simple fact of the matter is the railway companies don't want to offer people better than what was, you know, not even better, but as what was requested, if you will. You know, regardless of what percentage of profits they're saying that they will miss out on by making certain concessions. And this is, this is, I suppose, the point or the lesson for a lot of people in the US. I think it's easy for people to say yes to the concessions on the basis of on the basis, on the basis of the poor conditions that they're already in, because of course, naturally <laughs> speaking, Yes, you are getting some slight benefits to that, but what about the bigger picture? You can't just think in terms of the now. You have to think of how this affects the rest of the country, not simply the company that you are working in. And this is important for any strike, in my opinion. You can't go down that narrow hole of thinking only in terms of what is ultimately around you, but simultaneously you have to look outside your own surroundings. You know, what are the greater implications? To me, if you're making a simple concession to a company that doesn't even give you most of what you require, again, if only a third of vans are getting air conditioning, that's not really enough, in my opinion. Um, secondly, you know, you'd be telling other people who are thinking of going on strike that it is easier to make simple concessions rather than actually create a domino effect. And I think that's what's important because if the RMT wasn't under the leadership of Mick Lynch in particular, I don't personally believe that it would still be going on, nor do I believe that there would be better, I suppose, discussions between the two rather than, you know, rather than just giving into a simple concession at that particular time. You know, so I think the reality is, you know, this is, I think that's why a lot of people rather are accusing the leadership of the Teamsters of being a little bit weak in certain places, especially when it comes to simply agreeing with those concessions right away. In fact, some people have even accused the one of the head the heads of the Teamsters, a, a Sean O'Brien, for being pugilistic in terms of his statements, accusing him of rather remaining on the side of the establishment compared to 
you know, in other words, remaining on the side of the establishment on the basis of simply focusing on a deal rather than allowing a strike to actually happen. Because it's quite clear that the threats of a strike were making management, to put it politely, shit themselves. There has been um, no strike. This is the deal. These are the concessions yeah. that were made after the threat of a strike. Yes. So people, yeah, who are minded. And this isn't me saying that workers should just go be sacrificing themselves, jumping off this cliff in the hope no. that eventually somebody... That, if this is a, an effective workers' union and not a boss's union, which is what the AFL... It's funny because we had the AFL the American Federation of Labor, and uh, you'll have, like, the OG communists back in, like, 1910, because the AFL was not an integrated union. It was a whites-only, no. like, it was kind of a consist uh, a continuation of the, like, uh, fucking borderline aristocratic, like, workers' guild system of, oh, if you haven't put in the, uh, like, if you aren't the son of my friend's brothers, uh, you don't get to have any good job, but, yes, like, and the whole big fight was to eventually create the CIO, the AFL-CIO, which was the integrated union. And now both of those have been integrated, haha, into like the owner's uh, calculations. Most of the dudes who run these unions or the leadership, the elected leadership of these unions are not going out. They aren't even talking in a revolutionary manner. They're just like, okay, if we all pray really hard, we'll get a six cent raise and then you better elect me again to my union position. So I <laughs> like, and now they're just fuckers who don't even work. <laughs> If there was some kind of actual revolutionary union movement, or if we had that kind of like we had back in the 70s, these unions wouldn't, they aren't asking you to take blind leaps of faith or self sacrifice. It's you do the no. thing, you go out, you get fired, we're going to take care of you. We have a union fund, we're going to help your family, because that's like what gave the unions power to begin with. That's why people all were joining unions in the 70s. Like, holy shit, when Billy got fired, he was in the union and he didn't lose his house. <laughs> Which eventually, if you're following this and fighting for more and more and more and more, eventually can lead to some kind of of labor movement that creates overall change or at the very least if you have a big scary union it makes it way harder for your boss to go oh well, we're just gonna hire these scrubs these part-timers and pay them one-tenth and give them none of the benefits and uh, like we just allow the bosses to have a whole separate non-union track while having a union what for aesthetics <laughs> yeah. i mean i mean and it's also worth keeping in mind that as far as i can tell UPS is still, strictly speaking, from what I've read, um, are still going to keep newly hired workers on lower wages, regardless. You know, so this not friend even, I'm talking about worked you know, as a part-time holiday worker for a year and a half, killed themselves doing it, and then they yeah. they did get full time, so it did work out for them. But it does not for most people. Part of the promise is that there are going to be ten thousand new full-time jobs, and they've been talking about those ten thousand new jobs for ten thousand years. They just haven't manifested, it seems, and nothing in the contract agreement like puts a hard deadline or a hard note. It's like, we will work towards the creation of <laughs> some positions. Like, sure, right, great. Yeah, and it's certainly apparent that the two-tier wage structure, in other words, is, you know, has quite an influence, if you will, and it's why some people are stuck in these very difficult positions for such a prolonged period of time. But by not ending that in some sense or another, people are still going to be ultimately stuck. The vast majority of people, rather, are going to be stuck in very poor working conditions. Some people have called this the art of the steel, if you will. And again, by not eliminating that system, you know, it's difficult to argue that much was really accomplished in the long term rather than in the short term. 
The railroad and, has two workers on five mile long trains. That's yeah. where this two tier employment system ends. You get one full timer on an entire. <laughs> yeah. So I think the lesson for people is that companies will only ever go as far as they wish. And you have to develop psychological resilience in any strike movement. You know, a lot of US workers, I feel, because the conditions are already poor, resilience is consequently already poor. So I think the key is most strike movements in the US need not only a better leadership, but they need an ideologically motivated leadership, which again, in the UK, we do still, you know, don't get me wrong, our resilience is still poor, but we do have figureheads that are ideologically motivated which is important. Again, the media criticizes this because, oh no, unions are supposed to be impartial. All this shit. <laughs> Fuck that. You know, <laughs> They're supposed to be partial just... on the side of the workers. They're supposed to be partisan, goddammit. Precisely. <laughs> you, so in other words, you need, an, you need ideological conviction to have a strong leadership. And I think that's why a lot of people who, if you are yourself in unions within the US, you need to develop your own ideological convictions to challenge that present structure. Because if you don't, the fact of the matter is the people who become leaders are simply going to be the people who make very minor concessions and that is it. Which is not enough for a country like the US, especially in a federated system, whereby people are constantly trying to make ends meet on a daily basis. So again, not only think of the wider picture, I suppose, is my concluding remarks on that, but simultaneously focus on developing a stronger leadership as well as an ideological conviction for that leadership. Because again, at the end of the day, the media is going to criticize you regardless of what you do. <laughs> like, it doesn't, doesn't matter if you make concessions or not. I mean, I've read some of your clickbait shit articles, and I can assure you that even the, con even the, con even making the concessions is not enough to get the media on your side that you will constantly face attack again the rmt have continued to face continuous media attacks since they started the strikes and continuous propaganda in favor of the managers of the railways in particular so are people sick of that it seems at least on my corner of the internet eh, very biased like are, are the general uk they're still falling for like oh they're trying to keep you from getting to work on time blah, blah, blah. like I'd say or it's people 50, are like, 50. yeah, we get it, but... I'd say it's 50-50. You know, the 50% of people who do complain are typically people who work in the cities, who tend to travel quite far and work middle management jobs, in my opinion. Um, whereas a lot of the other people who are less critical are more empathetic on the basis of the fact that they work in positions that don't pay well already. Like, I wish I could be on strike. <laughs> you, you know, but the, the, again, it's the same kind of story. It's all to do with class. And the fact of the matter is that this is how they divide people up on purpose. So, in my opinion, ultimately, whether or not people say yes to this concession, which, statistically speaking, it seems like the majority will. Um, I do think for future use... There needs to be a complete overturn in leadership mechanisms of that particular company's union representatives because clearly they're too quick to avoid a strike despite the fact that they could have easily, in my opinion, let it go on 
rather than make a quick concession because they were already crapping themselves. I mean, it's quite clear because they made a concession that quickly. So why It's not too late. They could vote no and still go on strike, which was an eye from the outside. My opinion doesn't matter. I'm not the one actually doing the job. But you should look at, like, the opportunity that was afforded to you. Realize that, yeah, if if you didn't have leverage, they wouldn't have already made these concessions. Fuck Sunday. Fuck Saturday. I say, you say... Bring us back to a five-day work week. Keep these raises exactly where they are for the full-timers. Eliminate. uh, You don't even have to eliminate part-time. Because I can understand that around like Christmas, yeah, you need to temporarily hire some people that making all of them full-time year-round wouldn't make complete sense. You do not have to do it in the way that it is currently done, which is like... (laughs) Which is like just a freaking festival of worker abuse of like work a bajillion hours and maybe we'll give you they dangle the carrot of like maybe we'll full time hire you even though statistically less than 10% of you will get (laughs) full time hired even if you do this for multiple years. Talking about more assertive leadership and uh, things done specifically to divide people away from revolutionary worker-focused leadership and movements, I want to talk about the Economic Freedom Fighters, which is a political party in South Africa who, if you listen to the weirdo American internet, they're calling for the murder of all white people, even though the EFF has many, many white members. (laughs) I saw a couple of, uh, I saw a couple of absolutely terrible cartoons going about on uh, Twitter, well, rebranded to a shittier name. But uh, <laughs> <Thanks>. <laughs> it's so bad. Um, apart from that, yes, um, th- there's already been quite a bit of an upstir, particularly amongst the American right wing, but even the more liberal um, minded Americans, as they call themselves, in my opinion. They can't help themselves. No, they they're can't. like, oh no, reverse racism, help. Because <laughs> they have a, a phrase that's kill the boar, which way the hell back in the day with uh, when apartheid was happening was it can you can translate it to kill the white man. And as a phrase, if I was the guy running shit, probably wouldn't pick it. I can see that as just kind of feeding into these weird divisive. Blah. But in this case, this is like so clearly like if you're in the thing, it's so clearly not that. Like I was saying before, the EFF has many, many white, pale skinned members. The, yeah. There are uh, working class white South Africans who have no piece of the pie who are in no way part of the owning class who during apartheid were not landowners. They were just working schlubs trying to make money like trying to survive like everybody else and gosh darn do i love that even their name the economic freedom fight even though i've heard that this is like a kind of like a trotskyist group so they're not my favorite flavor of communist i want to play this clip because it it brings you through the entire emotional range uh you're only going to be able to hear it because this is audio but if you look it up the visuals help a little bit but you get most of it through the audio uh this is the this is like an the eff big rally for the year and this is their leader talking uh you might remember this leader because we uh we played him before when he was saying yeah if we want to invite world leaders to south africa and other countries aren't mad about it they can fuck off we're gonna bring whoever we want here because we are a sovereign nation (laughs) so here's the same chad going again i will never get tired no one can make me tired i march forward 
to the victory of our people. The revolution in South Africa is guaranteed that under the EFF, this country will be the better. Stand up, South Africa. Make sure that, South Africa, you are counted with me. Run, South Africa. Stand and make sure that our people understand that they need to be counted. You must be counted. You must be part of history. You must make sure that you are one of the people who are going to deliver economic freedom in our lifetime. Freedom in our lifetime. I don't know why they used the John Cena entrance theme because it, um, it's <laughs> yeah a bit, a bit unfortunate. I mean, it was it was great, and then they just they done that. It, but even with it, everybody's losing their shit. I'm like, the time is now. Like, even I'm like, you know what? This is funny because of the context I know it in, but it's not inappropriate necessarily. No, no, no I suppose not. <laughs> like, oh, like dear. if you don't know who John Cena is and you don't know what wrestling is, this is just a kind of a motivational song. But it's not that John Cena uses someone else's song as his walk-in. This is a custom made for John Cena. It says in the lyrics, you can't see me, which is like one of his shtick. So it's not like they took some hip-hop song that happens to be used for John Cena's entrance. How did this end up playing? And the only thing you can't see visually is while he's saying rise up. He's literally on a big red platform that rises up from the stage <laughs> in this big ass stadium he's in. And then freaking confetti cannons are going off. I mean, it, it's a it's a spectacle. People, you know, I think it's I, a good way. I, I think it's good to have a spectacle. Don't get me wrong. I think well, it's they're in like a football stadium that, packed. Like this is the setting where yeah. it completely makes sense. It's, I think it's more the fact that our Western minds have been poisoned by meme culture, to be honest with you. That's, I was not expecting it when I watched the clip. <laughs> I just genuinely busted out laughing. So I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> this is a Julius Malema who's talking. Every time I keep seeing him, like every few months, a clip of him comes up, and I'm like, God damn. I wish we had a single politician in the U.S. who talked like this guy. <laughs> no, I, I mean, exactly. You know, say what you want about his individual ideology, but the fact of the matter is he has conviction. He has ideological resilience as well as psychological resilience, which, are, you know, are the three things, in my opinion, are necessary for any successful labor movement to succeed. I mean, historically speaking, this makes sense. It's in the case of the Bolsheviks, in the case of the Chinese Revolution, um, Cuban Revolution, if you will, they've all had to, they've all in some sense required a strong ideological conviction to achieve their goals. And because, I think it says a lot about Western society, because we're so poisoned by individualism, as well as sticking within our own bubble and picking out our own favorite ideas from a shelf essentially we we have to kind of recognize that you know we ourselves can become better than that and where it first starts is by unifying with other people you know as a starting point if you will i mean i know so many leftists in the states who don't even 
involve themselves within the labour movement directly. You know, they speak over them rather than speaking with them. And this create this obviously creates a bad narrative, not just for leftists as a whole, but simultaneously for the movement as a whole. So I think in in terms of South Africa, even from that relatively um powerful speech, I think, you know, that's something that we should at least aspire to in some sense or another. A lot of part of what I've been, I don't know, learning, figuring out, I hate, I, I never want to paint myself as like, oh, I'm better than people because I'm smarter than them because I read the right book or read. But of course. the, the just basic idea that if you believe anything that Marx wrote, any of the revolutionary tenets put forth as to like how, which I don't know why you wouldn't believe them because we have now at this point several historical examples, including the largest economy in the world, that prove that. Yeah, there's something to this. If you have no willingness or if you are repulsed by the working class in your country, yeah. you need to get out. You got to either work on that or just quit. Like, you need to get the hell out right. of it. You're not exactly. actually a leftist. And this is a guy talking to the working class of South Africa. And in no way does that mean that you need to lower your ideals down to weird reactionary shit. Because, like, workers don't have weird reactionary beliefs because they're stupid inherently, because they're just born bad and awful. It's because they're constantly bombarded by, at least in the United States, the most sophisticated propaganda apparatus ever devised by man. It's, in yeah. fact, more of a miracle that people... That not everyone is absorbed into this so it's not that you gotta just oh it's fine they're just a dumb worker they could just be as backwards and as horrible as they are the process of proletarian revolution changes people working yes. for each other changes you if you're a piece of shit coming in and you actually dedicate yourself to the work do the work make the things happen you're not gonna be a piece of shit coming out of it you become better <laughs> It's not that you, you have do. to only find the good workers. You create good workers by fucking working with them. All right. No, no. As it turns out, you know, I completely agree. Um, <laughs> and again, shocking, it's shocking. But you know, like this, I think this is where a lot of the petite bourgeois idealism comes into a lot of Western leftist thought, in that most people can recognize a problem but they can't create actionable solutions to that problem. One, because they tweeting. don't want to You're be You're describing involved. tweeting. Yes, well, tweeting as a... It's your actionable... You know, a, a, <laughs> if you want to call that actionable, I suppose every anarchist I've met is actionable. But, oh, the, the <laughs> most hardcore American progressive politician. That's what they do. They will tweet. Yeah, um, I can see a lot of things happening from that. But but you know, like this this is kind of the thing. You you need to show that you are on the same wavelength as other people. Because liberals ultimately aren't. I mean, liberals themselves have poisoned society with this idea that the middle ground is the best solution to every problem and that is it. But we all know based on material experience that that's not true. Simple as, you know, and whilst liberal academics have attempted to accuse socialists and of course well and obviously spoken of fascists trying to make the two the same side of the same coin basically they've tried to basically say that that's the general proponents of authoritarianism the idea that of course 
you shouldn't seek a middle ground to any solution. You should instead seek an extreme solution to a problem. But the reality is, liberals themselves seek their own extreme solution to the problem. They're not middle-minded. They're not as middle-minded as they state that they are. In fact, the holding things how they are now is very extreme. It takes an extreme amount of impression to hold things together how they are right now. Precisely. So by that same logic, if they're going to accuse other people of being on extreme ends of a arbitrary political spectrum, then they themselves also have to self-reflect because they're no different. In fact, they're just as authoritarian, as I have said many times before, as the quote-unquote authoritarians that they accuse of being extreme. So the reality is society itself will always have a status quo in some sense or another, but the only difference is the status quo has to be in favour of the people who actually create society, which, of course, as we know, is the working class. So you can't, you know, whereas liberal academics would argue that it's a combination of both, but we all know the historical material reality dictates the opposite. So, again... People have to not be afraid of ideological conviction, but they also have to not be afraid of getting on other people's level. Instead of being pompous, arrogant, self-righteous dickheads on social media, they should instead seek a better pastime and actually get involved. Because if they don't get involved, like, I, like we've spoken about previously, the improvements to labor leadership will continue to remain stagnant. And conditions will only improve bit by bit so much as they want them to improve. Because they will always try to adjust things on their favour. So stop pretending, for the love of God, that these people are on your side because they're not. And they never were. And you can look at the UK as a perfect example of this, historically and presently. A ton of lead up here uh, to, uh, let me read a bit of this. This is from Black Agenda Report, which, hey, opposite of Reuters, they speak a little bit more inflammatorily than I probably would, but hey, why not? Somehow I'm this, not surprised. I, it's not, eh, I, I don't, <laughs> like, I don't go, <clears throat> I, I get really uh, cr- critical of people who are more concerned with who said a thing than the content oh, yes. of what was said. Isn't that the basis of modern journalism, though? <laughs> yeah. It's not that I don't in any way, like, vet or check my sources. Because this isn't really a source. I'm not basing my opinion on this Black Agenda Report article. But it puts a lot of uh, the narrative into one spot where I can read it down. And I know... Because I'm not going to go on Reuters and hear them describing the uh the activity in africa as a people's revolution they are only ever going to describe it as a oh, military junta and there's some uh well which that's not even inaccurate that is what it is and uh there's you know some stuff's going on the, the u.s has given them a deadline to put their old president back all right moving on and that's like all you're ever going to hear yeah. about it so let me read from them here this is a this article is called revolution in oh i wonder which of like i wonder if you have a better pronunciation is it revolution in sahel sahel i am, I am not it's a word, region I'm not of africa a good person to ask when it comes to those yeah s-a-h-e-l it's a region of africa that encompasses of a northwestern africa yes the part that france controls 
Uh, like that whole region is called the Sahel or Sahil military coup in Guinea, Mali, Burkina Faso, and Niger. I said those ones, right? As I've heard so many Najir in this last month, you know, Najir, my favorite country, which is different by the way, Niger is different from Nigeria, which is the part that, so if you say like Nigerian, it's like, wait, Nigerian or all right. We're talking about Niger, not Nigeria. As the U.S. and France move to interfere in the Sahel region of West Africa, uh, Niger, Guinea, Burkina Faso, and Mali have spoken up to defend their sovereign rights and declare their determination to be free from Western hegemony. On July 26, 2023, in a military coup d'etat, the National Council for the Safeguard of the Homeland, CSNSP, ousted Niger President Mohamed Bazoum and took control of the country. This followed recent coups in Burkina Faso, Guinea, Konkari, Mali, and Chad. These countries are bound together by the Sahel, a semi-arid region on the edge of the Sahara Desert that stretches from the Atlantic Ocean in the west and to the Red Sea in the east. The Sahel region suffers from a number of complex factors resulting from French political and economic domination designed to exploit the region's vast natural and human resources while subordinating the region's sovereignty to France. The U.S. and European powers have collaborated to promote an imperialist agenda. Consider the NATO-led invasion of Libya, which led to the murder and overthrow of pan-Africist leader Muhammad. Uh, Muammar Gaddafi. Libya then became a breeding ground for Western armed terrorist groups that destabilized the region. Because of these ongoing conflicts instigated and perpetuated by Western imperialist powers, life in the Sahel region has been and remains hellish. I can't get into a whole big ass conversation about Libya, but if you look at Libya under Gaddafi, like right before, uh, a little bit before he was killed, it was the most successful economy in Africa. If you look at Libya now, there are open slave markets. When they talk about ground for te- uh, Western-armed terrorists, like ISIS. ISIS took over Libya. Why? Because we kind of, like, designed that to happen. Not, And now we get to have a whole big argument as to, was Gaddafi a perfect Jesus Christ or not? Because if he wasn't, he deserved everything he got, right? All right. Uh, and everything the West did had nothing to do with it. We can never consider our... Um, <laughs> life in the Sahel has been and remains hellish. It is in this context we observe Sahel, the Sahel's most recent history of coups. However, not all coups are staged for the same reasons. This is where we get into a conversation here. Throughout history, and especially in the 20th and 21st, 21st centuries, anti-colonial and pro-people movements have conducted coups on their own, overthrowing rep- repressive and brutal dictatorships and securing material gain for the masses who had the colonizer's boot pressed on their necks. Again, very colorful language in this thing. I kind of like it. Of the 106 coup d'etat in Africa since 1950, 103 have been reactionary coups orchestrated by the Portuguese, French, U.S., and other European powers. Of the first and mo- one of the first and most brutal coups was the U.S.-backed overthrow of the democratically elected Congolese president Patrice Lumumba. If you've been hanging out in leftist circles for any amount of time, you've heard that name. Who was detained, murdered, and dissolved in a barrel of acid? The CIA overthrew Kwame. Nkrumah in 1966 while he was in China consulting on a plan to end the American war in Vietnam. 1973, the Portuguese assassinated assassinated Amilcar Cabral before his party, the African Party for the Independence of Guinea and Cape Verde, won independence. The PAIGC came to power months later and was overthrown in 1980 by the French orchestrated coup. 
To this horrific list of Western-inspired coups must be added the 1987 assassination of Thomas Sankara and overthrow of the revolutionary government in Burkina Faso, once again with the hidden hand of imperialists and their puppets. One more paragraph, then we'll talk. However, there have been three coups in Africa's history that have defied the trend of reaction. These military uprisings were conducted in the interest of the people. Each of these was pan-African in nature and revolutionary in spirit. The first was the Egyptian Revolution that followed a carefully planned and executed 1952 coup to overthrow King Farouk. Gamel Abdul Nassar became president in 1956 and made Egypt the first modern African state to initiate revolutionary land reforms. We see this as proof that a coup d'etat could be a positive thing under the proper conditions. For instance, when the, when the forces led by the aforementioned Colonel Muammar Gaddafi took over Libya from the British-backed Senussi monarchy of King Idris I. The Gaddafi government nationalized the oil reserves and used that revenue to fund redistributive programs for the people. Libya provided its people with education, health care, housing, and improved living conditions. Under the Jamarheria government, Libya became a beacon of light for all of Africa with the highest standard of living on the continent. The article continues, but the point it is making is when you see a coup in Africa, like I get accused of this. It was like, oh, a coup's in Africa and it's anti-US. Of course you support it. it Hitler himself could shoot the US and you'd love Hitler because you just hate the United States so much. The, when I decide whether or not I personally have, first of all, my support does not matter. I'm a random fucker standing in America and what I think does not really affect uh, the African conflict or the African workers' struggle. Uh, but... When I'm deciding my opinion on a coup or a movement or a revolution, like when a bunch of people are getting mad and doing a thing, you have to look to for which class is this revolution happening? Like, is this a weird color revolution thing where the U.S. is rabble, like getting uh, separatist rabble rousers to go and like cause problems so they can do a coup on their leader to get him? Like a like an Iraq situation where no, we didn't love Saddam Hussein, but like you can't go. Oh yes, we definitely improved things by moving in and getting rid of that guy who we also installed in a previous coup. All right, never mind. When you look at a coup where it is supported by the people and seems to be for the interest of the people, freaking list, like, you give it a second. <laughs> Not blind support, but in Niger right now, yeah, you have the pictures of the scary guy in the military outfit sitting at a desk saying, like, I'm in charge of Niger now. But you also have the tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people in the street in support of that, hanging out outside of the French embassy. Because the other belligerent in the situation is French colonialism. Like, is that who we support? Instead, I hear all day about how we have to be so anti-colonialist. And when an anti-colonialist movement starts making noise, I, I'm told, oh, they're homophobic. Or, oh, they're bad for this other, like, American liberal reason. <laughs> Therefore, you must damn all of Africa to just sit under their freaking puppet governments for all time until the United States decides that they deserve a better leader. Like, Niger, what is it, like, 80% of France's uh, uranium? Uranium, right? Not plutonium. They have a lot of uranium there, and that's why France needs them. France is almost entirely nuclear-powered. 80% of Niger has no electricity of any kind. So, like, what yeah. the fuck are we talking about here? Because <laughs> the guy who's currently stirring shit up uh, wants to electrify the rest of Niger, where France has had how many decades to do that, and they have no seemingly no interest in doing so. Oh. Never had. 
Um, I mean, the fact of the matter is that, you know, people who accuse, such as yourself, of, oh, if Hitler didn't like the US, then you would have liked him, are the same people who, ironically speaking, would have supported Augusto Pinochet's dictatorship in Chile, you know, which they conveniently omit, of course, from their arguments. But the fact of the matter is that, you know, it is a clear case of colonialism in that particular sense. I mean, funnily enough, I've saw people's... I saw people on social media in particular make relatively bash um, or rash rather um, defenses of the colonialism by basically stating, oh, no, but these uh, these oil fields and all these mining operations are owned by France. So how dare you attempt What's that to French oil doing under Africa's soil? <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know the oil speak French. You know, they, but they may as well make that argument because it's just as absurd, if not idiotic. So, again, it's of no surprise that a lot of Americans in particular that are more well-off, more privileged, if you will, can make such accusations from their armchair without actually considering the fact that people are reacting to these things within a reasonable measure in Africa because these things have been going on for decades you know, it's this is not recent at all. It's been going on for a very long time. So in other words, it was only a matter of time until people eventually decided, all right, mate, I've had enough. Get off. You know what I mean? So, like, my take on it is, ultimately, it's a good thing to see. And any so-called leftists who would argue the paradox are simply ignoring the fact that this that this entire series of movements is going to have wider implications for the Western Hemisphere. So if you ultimately, within your own conviction, of course, decide that you don't want to support the liberal establishment, then by all means, you should definitely lend your support to these movements from a critical lens, of course, taking a more, taking a more dialectical approach to the matter. But the fact of the, but you know, the point is, you know, clearly there is benefit being done as it is. There wouldn't be such a media backlash if there wasn't. So taking that into account, you know, with regards to the Pan-African movement as a whole, given the, given the amount of interventions that have occurred over the past over the past century, if you will, and even in our own century, you know, it's of no surprise that the Western governments of the world wishing to hold down the people of these countries within their own personal agenda don't want these things to pop up again. I mean, that's why else would they have done that to such a prosperous series of nations that were already doing well without our glorious democracies, as we call them. I see Libya as important, and the reason that, like, I understand why they bring it up, because it kind of looks like these other regions have, they saw what happened in Libya and were like, yeah, no, they're not, they were going to try really hard to make sure that doesn't happen again. Because who is it? Mali, Niger, Niger, and Burkina Faso, they've all like pledged to, to defend each other from any foreign military intervention. Because France and the US are already, already have been like the last week, we're kind of late to this. I've already been talking about like, well, who are we sending in? Got to send in troops, right? So, like, are we all going to. I know how we all as Western people feel about a uh, sovereign nation getting invaded by a more powerful foreign neighbor, right? So logically, we should be very much in support of Niger 
Burkina Faso and Mali. Who could possibly stand such a colonial imperialist power as France moving in and doing what they wish with the resources of a foreign nation, a sovereign foreign nation, one that's developing a pipeline? <laughs> you know, you'd think American. You think Americans would know this. I'm just saying. Well, they just found out about some of these countries like last year, so I don't know. <laughs> hey, guys, I know you just found out about Ukraine. Wait till you hear about Niger. <laughs> Get your fucking flags ready. <laughs> Is this going to be the new trend, just flags? If I have to see another series of random flags <laughs> down my street every time I go to work. It's like ships in the past. You send messages with your many flags on a string so you know if you're passing to the right or left. We've been poisoned. I have an American... I've put an American flag right next to my little communist sickle and my Twitter thing, and I get shit for both of them, and it's always funny. So it'll be like, American flag in bio. <laughs> like, opinion. It's like, well, <laughs> communist sickle. <laughs> I, I should probably, I I should probably, I should probably just put an Irish flag next to mine just to do an Irish flag hammer sickle. It'll piss off all the correct people and people who know what you're talking about will never talk about it. Like, oh, yeah, of course. Like you're Irish, you're communist. Boom. Like, <laughs> like clearly you're an American, an actual American patriot who gives a shit about Americans, <laughs> not like the American owning. Like... Yeah, it's not even the American owning. Like it is the. These corporations, the same kind of, uh, the same basic principles as what the NATO world order is doing to uh, Niger, this whole region of Africa, it's done to Americans all the time, and we just, like, don't even feel and notice it. The neighborhoods yeah. around me, a whole block gets bought up by a multinational corporation who does not give a shit if that land is here or on Mars. They do not care about the people who live there, and they are only there to extract value from the community that's basically what's happening in Niger, but with with uranium, and we like I don't that sympathy has got to like it's there. How much insane propaganda has to be done to keep us from noticing these similarities? Where it's like, man, I know it's to a very different degree, but the same kind of Niger is an occupied nation. The American workers are an occupied nation. The Irish workers are an a much more literally occupied nation. Like it's very still, easy still to are. see these parallels. <laughs> That's what I mean. Like it's been it's been good. it's like since 1102 the <laughs> Irish occupation. <laughs> these aren't hard parallels to draw and the working class the more we get to see each other and hang out with each other the more we want to come together and the harder yeah. they have to work to make this hard because <laughs> it's naturally just going to happen we're going to see it that's where shit trends well I definitely think it's something worth keeping an eye on for everybody and hopefully through the process of collective self-reflection and ignoring the bullshit articles on a daily basis that maybe, just maybe, we will see more people become more sympathetic over time with regards to these movements. And I am I am personally myself looking forward to it and, and I'm watching with keen interest to see what comes of all of it. So for now, we're going to say goodbye. Thank you very much for joining me, Lorcan. I'm happy. To, I'm excited to talk to you again in another couple no, of weeks. No, thank you. I appreciate it. Very much it's so. always nice having level-headed talks. Well, <laughs> well I try. All right, yell goodbye. Bye. Bye.